0: This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies and for Terry Gross. Part of the appeal of pro football has always been bone-jarring hits delivered on quarterbacks, receivers, and running backs. But as four teams battle Sunday for a trip to the Super Bowl, there will almost certainly be fewer headshots than in past years. That's because the league has finally made and enforced rule changes aimed at reducing head trauma. Players are now fined tens of thousands of dollars for leading with their helmets and tackles, and teams are banned from sending players with concussion symptoms back into games or practice. One of the agents of those changes is our guest, Christopher Nowinski. When he was a defensive lineman at Harvard, like others, he thought players who complained about head injuries were soft. But after suffering further concussions as a pro wrestler, he became an advocate for safer competition. In 2006, he wrote the book Head Games, Football's Concussion Crisis, and he co-founded the Sports Legacy Institute, a nonprofit focused on concussions in sports. Part of Nowinski's work has involved convincing families of deceased former players to give him the athletes' brains so they could be studied for evidence of head trauma. Nowinski says there's been progress in protecting athletes, but as you'll hear, he thinks far more can be done, especially in youth football. I spoke to Christopher Nowinski yesterday. Well, Christopher Nowinski, welcome to Fresh Air. Let's talk about your own experience first. You played football at Harvard. You were an all-Ivy League lineman, right? That's correct. Um, do you know if you suffered concussions playing in college?
1: I believe I suffered two very minor ones. And they were not diagnosed at the time because, of course, I never said anything to anybody. But the uh, the one I remember most vividly was uh, it was actually an inter-squad scrimmage before the season, uh, I think my junior year. And I was in the back wall on the kick return team, and we had some uh, bad kickers back in that day. And I, I unfortunately kicked the ball to me, and I was never allowed to touch it when I played football as a lineman. So I didn't know what to do except for run forward and put my head down. And I went helmet to helmet against uh, one of our most vicious tacklers and uh, didn't remember falling down. Um, and I remember when the sky, uh, when, I, when I opened my eyes, the sky had gone from blue to orange. And that, that was a significant difference, I think, for me. But of course, I uh, I just kept on playing through it, and then pieced together what exactly happened when I watched the film the next day and saw that we both uh, found out we both got knocked silly and just kind of fell sideways, and it wasn't nearly as cool of a collision as I thought.
0: Wow, w- was anybody talking about you know head injuries and concussions back then?
1: Not in any serious way. Uh, you, you know, we'd heard. You know, I started college in '96, and '94 was when Troy Aikman and Steve Young had those concussion issues, and that was kind of a early blip on this issue. But there was never really a context as to what you know what mattered about concussions and why it was a big deal that Troy Aikman suffered you know ten concussions. And so, I remember thinking that the the teammates that I knew that got concussions, I I, I was one of those guys who thought they were soft and that there was something wrong with them.
0: Hmm. So, so you, you get out of Harvard and then end up with a pro wrestling career the, at the, what World Wrestling Entertainment. Tell tell us a little about your persona as a wrestler.
1: <laughs> I got to have a lot of fun uh, by being a snobby Ivy League graduate. I happened to pre you know pre WWE. I was on a reality television show called Tough Enough, and there were two Chris's on the show. And so that was back in the day they didn't use last names and so they started calling me Chris Harvard. And once I was, <laughs> was called Chris Harvard, I was immediately going to be a bad guy. And so uh, I would uh, travel the world insulting the fans and insulting my opponents and... Uh, You know, say things like uh, when we went to Iowa State University and I I said, you know, Harvard and Iowa State have a lot in common. You know, Harvard has lots of road scholars and Iowa State has lots of dirt roads. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, it was just a blast. Went
0: over big, I guess. Huge. Um, (laughs) Well, you know, we've got a little piece of sound from your days uh, back in the ring. And I thought we'd listen to this. I don't know where this is. But this is you with a microphone. Uh, talking to the crowd in the center of the ring and doing your act Um, and we should say that you come out and you wear red shorts with a Harvard H across your rear end, right? That is correct. Um, And so in this clip we'll hear you talking to the audience and then we've got some TV announcers sort of chirping in and reacting to you. Let's listen.
1: Ever since I made my debut in the WWE I've been perplexed as to why you people seem to hate me. Just because I'm a Heard that word before, perplexed. Oh, yes, i am uh, You people should be grateful to have someone of my intelligence in your presence. Exactly. Has anything to do with Harvard? It's an honor. But I understand why you people can't relate to a guy like me, because after all, I am a Harvard graduate.
0: Well, that seems like more fun than graduate school. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the days, um, and and of course, you, you you were the foil. You were the, the you were the guy that that folks loved to hate because you were this Ivy League snob. But you did get in the ring and you mixed it up. Um, what what kind of headshots did you take?
1: Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I I took quite a few. Um, of course, wrestling is meant to be, uh, you know, predetermined, and you're not supposed to injure your opponent, but the reality is the, the moves are so fast, and, and most of it, most of the matches are improvised, there's a very small margin for error. And so I got four concussions while I was wrestling, um, and a few of them were from kicks to the head. Uh, you know, just just the the fact that I'm I'm running full speed across the ring, and, and one of them, Bubba Ray Dudley's, giving me a, a you know kick, kicking me in the head with a straight leg, and we were just six inches closer than we thought, and he was trying to make it look good, and so he just knocked me silly. Um, another time, somebody was giving me a move called an Inseguri, where they kicked me in the back of the head. And the sound you usually hear is the person slapping their hip while they do it. But in this one, uh, my my friend Simon Dean later told me he thought he broke his foot. So um, you know, I, I I got unlucky a number of a number of nights, and uh, it was rough. And,
0: and what symptoms did you experience, and do you still experience?
1: Well, at the time I he kicked me, I remember we were in the Hartford Civic Center, and I. Hit, it hit my back, you know, and I remember looking up at the at the ceiling uh, the arena, and realizing that uh, I, could, I just had no idea where I was, and I had no idea what what we were doing out there i couldn 't remember what happened before i couldn 't remember what was hap- supposed to happen next and it was a it was a very scary feeling to be out in front of you know five thousand fans with with it was a tag team match, three guys moving around you at full speed and just being completely uh, felt like I was just dropped in on the situation. Um, so they, we ended up finishing the match because, you know, they just would tell me what to do move for move. Cause I had the memory of a goldfish. And when I got backstage, I just remember my head just pounding and pounding and pounding. Um, and I, the athletic trainer, we come out to see, you know, some, you could tell something was wrong, but the first thing I said was, you know, I'm fine, leave me alone. And I just, uh, I actually went and, and, and disappeared and hid in the bowels of the arena, uh, laying on the floor to try to cool off my head. And uh, as time went on, I ended up essentially, uh, I didn't know any better that you're supposed to rest a concussion after you get it. So I ended up wrestling or working out every day for five weeks and made the symptoms worse and brought on new ones. I developed short-term memory problems. It started with not being able to remember the matches as I was going out there and actually planning a couple matches at the end with plan B saying, if I blank out out there, let's do X, Y, Z. And then... What really, you know, made me stop uh, was the fact that I, we, um, we did a show. We went from Green Bay to Indianapolis. I'm driving to a, from Indianapolis to our show that night in Terre Haute. Apparently, I'm going in and out of normalcy and consciousness or something, where my driving partner, unbeknownst to me, though he was sitting next to me, called ahead to the, to the managers of that show saying, don't let Chris wrestle, there's something wrong with him. So I show up and they say, we're giving you the night off. So I don't wrestle. I go back to Indianapolis to get ready for the next show. And I go to bed, and my girlfriend happened to be on the road with me at the time. And I woke up, apparently about an hour after I went to bed, uh, on the floor of the hotel room, uh, surrounded by a broken nightstand and uh, a, a broken lamp. Uh, my girlfriend told me that I had started acting out my dream. And so I stood up on the bed at one point. She couldn't wake me up. She couldn't pull me down. And I, uh, in my dream, I guess I thought I saw something falling and I jumped for it and just went head first into the wall and through the nightstand. And apparently even hitting the ground didn't wake me up. It took about 30 seconds. And that's really what scared me straight and said, geez, I think there's something wrong with my brain and I should get checked out. And I, I never wrestled again. So tell us
0: about this becoming not just a personal issue but, well, um, a crusade for you.
1: My eyes were opened uh, when I was traveling from doctor to doctor to try to really understand what was going on inside my head. And nobody could help me understand, you know, why suddenly, I, you know, one kick to the head is, is causing all these problems. Finally, at doctor number eight was a gentleman named Dr. Robert Cantu, who uh, became my co-founder of SLI and became my mentor. But at the time, he was my, my concussion doctor, a neurosurgeon. And when I went into his office, He said, how many concussions have you had? And I said, well, I've had zero. And that's what I'd told the other seven doctors. I'd never been diagnosed with a concussion. And he said, "Okay, well, I I appreciate that. But how many times have you been hit in the head, and you've seen stars, or got double vision, or or felt nauseous, or got confused, and uh, dizzy? And I was like, well, Doc, those happen all the time. (laughs) That's just a ding. And he was like, well, that's actually, they're all concussions, whether or not you're knocked out and, and and maybe you've had too many. And that's how I kind of pieced together my concussion history of six in the previous five years. And then, you know, he started just sharing all this other information, you know, uh, talking about, you know, I couldn't believe, A, I didn't know what a concussion was. And B, he told me, had I rested the concussion and not fought through those five weeks, that I would have really probably been fine, that a concussion itself is not necessarily... Uh, a, a huge problem. But when you return to play too soon and, and keep stressing an injured brain, that's really the problem. And so I realized that I'd really thrown my career away in a few years of my life out of just, you know, plain old ignorance. Um, and then on my own, I happened to have a life prior to wrestling as a, as a life sciences consultant for a company called Trinity Partners outside of Boston. And I decided to read every study ever published on traumatic brain injury and, and concussion and, and what the consequences are. And it helped me realize that what people really didn't appreciate in the medical world was how many concussions were actually happening. Uh, there were a ton of studies out there that talked about the fact that 5% of football players or hockey players or soccer players each year were diagnosed with a concussion. But there were a small group of studies that actually asked the players, well, you know, because you don't tell an athletic trainer when you have a concussion because, A, you don't want to come out, and, B, you don't really even know you have the injury. Um, The studies that asked the players directly, it wasn't 5% who had concussions. It was 50% each year. So one out of every two players in a football field got dinged each year. And if that was truly the case, then we we did not have a handle on the situation at all. In in 2006,
0: you wrote the book, uh, Head Games. And I'd like you to tell us the story of Andre Waters and your involvement with him.
1: Right. So... I put all that information into Head Games, and then a month after the book came out, um, I read about Andre Waters committing suicide. He was a strong safety for the Philadelphia Eagles and a guy that I grew up watching uh, in great battles with the Chicago Bears. So in the book, in Chapter 4, I profiled a medical examiner named Malu, who had studied the brains of two Pittsburgh Steelers, who had died in Allegheny County, where he worked, and decided to take a look inside their brains to see if the symptoms that they'd shown throughout their lives, and they both struggled mightily in their 40s uh, before dying young, um, may have been correlated to uh, the disease chronic traumatic encephalopathy, also known as dementia pugilist or punch-drunk disease. Apparently, nobody had ever looked for this disease in a former football player, even though it was widely known in boxing, somebody nobody ever pieced together that football players might be at risk as well. So, uh, and, and you know, Mike Webster really struggled, uh, was homeless, and, and 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 suffered from dementia. He was the um, center for the Chicago Bears, right? Yeah. Uh, he was yeah. the center for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Steelers, okay. Right. Yep, he was a Hall of Famer, probably the best center to ever play the game. And then Terry Long was another offensive lineman for the Steelers who had committed suicide. And had shown very bizarre behaviors in the last few years of his life, including, uh, you know, he burned down his uh, chicken processing plant for the insurance money, uh, you know, just prior. So uh, because Long committed suicide at about the same age, I thought, you know, I bet you uh, Andre Waters, because he was known as Dirty Waters for being a big hitter with his head, had a lot of concussions. And I, and I wonder if the concussions led to the disease and the disease contributed to the suicide. And so I Googled Andre Waters' concussion history and found that he was quoted in 1994 saying that he stopped counting his concussions at 15 and he would just grab smelling salts and keep playing. So I knew that he was, if anyone was at high risk for CTE, it was Andre. And so I decided to call his family and ask if they would uh, let Dr. Marlowe study Andre's brain. Yeah, yeah. This is sort of a remarkable part of the story. You you figured you got to look at his
0: brain. You call and ask and...
1: Where was his brain? his brain was his brain was with the medical examiner, the medical examiner in, in cases where uh, people die in unusual circumstances uh, they they retain tissue and blood and some other things, and so he 'd retained five parts of andre 's brain and so um, and I actually asked the medical examiner first if if he was doing the studies. I kind of naively assumed that the medical examiner have some interest as to the cause of the suicide. And, you know, I remember the medical examiner telling me, yes, I know the cause of the suicide. He shot himself, in, or he, or the cause of death, he shot himself in the head. And so he wasn't interested in seeing any underlying issues. And so he was the one who actually told me that had, if I had the family's permission, that he couldn't stop me from, from having the studies done. And so I, you know, I tracked down his family and, and um, I, I laid it out to him. I said, I, you know, I think the brain trauma might have contributed We can find out, and the findings will go a long way towards making this game safer for the next generation. And so when um, it was Dr. O'Malley, you said, when he
0: examined Andre Waters' brain, what did he discover?
1: Uh, He discovered that Andre Waters was the third of three former NFL players who all died by the age of 50 who had CTE. And you know, considering the fact that Prior to this, when people thought, you know, what are the odds of someone getting CT, they really talked in terms of one in a million. Uh, to go for the three for three in this very select club was was shocking. And it, w- it did not bode well for people who played a lot of football. So a movement got underway. You I
0: mean, you and some others formed this group, the, the Sports Legacy Institute, and started raising this issue,
1: uh, both with the media, with the league.
0: Um, How did the rest of football react?
1: Um, Football did not react uh, well at the beginning, unfortunately. Um, The football community, whether you're talking NFL, college, youth, they saw this as a a threat to the game and um, as as an unnecessary nuisance. And people just did not want to have this conversation. I mean, you know... Not just not just belittling it in the media and saying this isn't you know, this isn't a real thing, it's just anecdotal evidence, it's it's uh, you know, you know, people practicing bad science. I mean those things were all said. But um but also just people were annoyed. I remember uh I had a good friend whose 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 his good friend was a was a coach in the NFL who told <laughs> who I said, you know, I'd like to speak with you, I'd like to share you this information and I was the message was passed to me to stop messing around with the game. So um So it kind of fell on deaf ears there for a while.
0: And I think one of the things that really got people's attention were some really heartbreaking stories about players who hadn't died but who'd really lost a lot of memory and cognitive function. Do you want to talk about one of those folks and and the impact they had?
1: Sure. Well, the the person who really, uh, you know, became a face for this uh, was a a former New England Patriots middle linebacker, Ted Johnson. Ted uh, had been introduced to me Actually, uh, in 06, before we, you know, be, well before Andre Waters, by a mutual friend who said, uh, you know, Ted retired from concussions, and uh, I think at the end of the '04 season, and had since gone on a pretty strong downward spiral to the point where he was abusing uh, you know, amphetamines. He was, you know, his, his marriage was falling apart. At times, he wasn't leaving his house for days. No one could ever get a hold of him. Um, I mean, it was really, uh, it was really a bad place. And he said, "Can you help Ted out?" And I and so I went out to Ted's house and I sat down with him and I and I said, um, you know, I said, you know, talk to me. What's going on? And he told me his symptoms, and I said, you know, I have I have the same thing. And and he was like, he said, "What's it called?" I'm like, I, we have post concussion syndrome. And he was like, I've never heard that phrase before. And apparently, Ted had no understanding of that 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 the concussions he suffered uh, could be contributing to the problems he had that day. And, and Ted had a very public. Problem. He had uh, he'd gotten a concussion in a Patriots game, um, and the you know Bill Belichick put him back in practice in live practice two days later against. That's, that Dr. was the head Orders. coach. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The head coach of the Patriots um, <clears throat> put Ted back in, and Ted got another concussion two days after the first, and he said he's never been the same guy since. And so, um, you know, Ted actually had uh, agreed to write the introduction to my book because I figured uh, that would help people take it seriously. And he actually wrote it and it was all ready to go to the printer and then he, uh, his family requested that he withdraw it because he didn't want to be seen, they didn't want him seen as someone with brain damage because that would hurt his ability to make a living the rest of his life. So he pulled out, we didn't talk for a little while and then when Andre uh, you know, committed suicide and then the story came out by Alan Schwartz on the front page of the New York Times I actually brought the the times over to Ted's apartment, and and before we went out to dinner, and I said, Ted, you know, this happened because guys don't know the name for what they're feeling, and if you came forward, you could make a huge difference. And you know, he he accepted that challenge, and he went public with his story, and and things were never the same.
0: You've talked about some some really tragic cases where former players who apparently had CTE, this you know this chronic traumatic injury, um, killed themselves. What, what, what are the symptoms before it reaches that point? Someone who gets advanced uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, what, what, what do they experience?
1: The symptoms you see at the beginning of chronic traumatic encephalopathy are, uh, it starts a lot with short-term memory problems and then overall memory problems, uh, it starts a lot with impulse control issues, and so uh, you just you, you don't have control of your behaviors, things you say, things you do, which leads to behavioral problems, and then you combine mood disorders like depression, and so uh, it, and and all that often leads to personality change, and so <clears throat> you're really focused on memory, cognition, uh, emotion, and mood, all of those things will change dramatically. And and what that becomes um, is that players who have had chronic traumatic encephalopathy, many of them have committed suicide. Many of them have developed drug and alcohol abuse issues. Uh, You know, a lot of them were actually self-medicating through headaches, uh, didn't have any impulse control issues, so would get addicted to things. Um, You have very bizarre behaviors. Uh, Justin Strelzik was hearing voices before, and, and giving away money on the streets and became hyper-religious before leading the police on a 40-mile chase where he went to the windshield and died. Um, you know, and, and I think the worst example would be Chris Benoit. Not an NFL player, but Chris Benoit was my colleague with World Wrestling Entertainment who uh, in 2007, after, uh, after being one of the most respected guys in WWE, decided to wake up one day and kill his wife, kill a 7-year-old son, and hang himself and his brain was very progressed with CTE. And so, um, it, you know, it's, it's it's really an ugly disease.
0: Well, as you and others raised the issue of head injuries in football, it sort of came to a boil in 2009. And for a long time, the National Football League didn't really acknowledge that, that there was scientific evidence that repeated concussions was having impacts on their players. But But they turned around, and they began to make some changes. Let's 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 talk about them. One of them had to do with uh, keeping players off the field who've had a concussion. Uh, what what did they do?
1: Yeah, the, um, in November December of two thousand nine, after uh, a pretty um, a pretty ugly congressional hearing for them, uh, the NFL saw the light and decided to make some, some pretty dramatic changes to their policies on how they treated head injuries and and one of them was that that, that uh, you know athletes were no longer allowed to return back to a game when they were symptomatic you know you know prior, uh, symptomatic from a concussion prior to this you know a famous example is 2005 when Wayne Corbett, uh, a wide uh, New York Jets wide receiver was knocked unconscious on the field for a minute and the jets team doctor happened to be the head of the NFL's concussion committee and thought it was a good idea to let Wayne go back into the game 10 minutes later and of course Wayne retired from the game from post concussion syndrome at the end of the season but no one ever pieced those two things together and so that that practice was now going to be stopped and that and to the benefit of a lot of players
0: and 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 in your impression as you watch the game is it being enforced are they keeping guys out of the game when they should
1: but they're getting better at it. I, I mean, I, I think at the end of the season, I think we saw it happening uh, very, very consistently. There were some, some striking uh, examples at the beginning of the season that the policy wasn't exactly working. Uh, I think the best example being a Philadelphia Eagles game early in the year where Kevin Cobb first got a concussion. And when he went to the sideline to be evaluated, Stuart Bradley got another one for the Eagles and actually uh, fell over trying to get to the sideline. And clearly, I mean, to anybody, he clearly had a concussion. But apparently no one from the Eagles medical staff was watching the game because they were all with Cobb and didn't see it. And no one on the coaching staff or the players thought they should alert them to it. And so Stuart Bradley found himself back in the game four minutes after falling over, after a hit to the head, and which was just horrifying and shocking. And everybody in the entire world watching that game knew he was concussed and shouldn't be in there, but the, the, the Eagles didn't handle it. And so you know those that became what was great about it, it became a media event. And I saw, I realized based on the reaction to it, you know, it was you know the the mood had changed, and that was never going to happen again because someone knew they were going to lose their job. But of course, Kevin Cobb even went back to that game, so uh, it got better at the end of the year.
0: Now they've also changed the rules and their enforcement of rules about uh, vicious hits. Um, you can't lead with your helmet now, right? And you can't uh, hit a defenseless player—that is, to guess, someone who's sort of open to to contact. You can't hit them with your helmet, what your forearm or the pads, or right? Your shoulder. shoulder pads, right? right,
1: right. And and is that working? You know, that that's working to to diminish the the biggest hits in the game. You know, the the issue is that you know as helmets have gotten better. Uh, you know, players have found it's very effective to use them as a weapon. And that's it's ex- exactly how you can deliver the most force to somebody. And, and and you can easily knock somebody out if they don't see it coming. Well, you know, that was, a, you know, while it might be an effective strategy, it was extra- extraordinarily dangerous for the players. And in the rule book, it was actually, you know, technically illegal, but it was never being enforced. And so the NFL stepped up and said, okay, we're going to eliminate these, these really vicious helmet to helmet hits on defenseless players. And and you know it has clearly changed the way the game was played and i even I even heard rumors that, that scoring was up this year because uh receivers were no longer as fearful to run across the middle i mean you know i mean it, it it's one thing to get the win knocked out of you i think we're we're bringing that back, but to get knocked out to catch a five yard pass across the middle is never worth it so um it, it's been remarkable to see how quickly the players adjusted and go have gone back to better tackling techniques. But you know, the reality is, um, you know, while that's a great change, it's certainly not going to solve the problem uh, in any major way by itself. I mean, we're, we're eliminating a few dozen hits from the league each year out of, out of hundreds of thousands. And so the bigger change that needs to be made is dramatically reducing actually how we practice this game. Studies show that 75% of the hits to the head a player will take happen in practice when no one's keeping score. And, having played and practiced and, and talked to guys who 've played, no one really enjoys the hitting in practice and If we found out that it 's this bad for you, we really should almost eliminate it from practice, just hit as much as it takes to be safe, but then save the hits for the games. If we did that, we would lower everyone 's exposure tomorrow by fifty percent and maybe even higher and coaches and that's would, the,
0: yeah i assume I assume coaches want want people to to hit in practice because they feel they're better prepared for the game, right.
1: Some coaches do. The, the, the fact is that there's a few great examples of programs who never hit, uh, like Saint Joseph's in uh, in Minnesota, who um, you know is a D three national champion almost every you know every few years. They never hit in practice. The fact is when when you talk to programs, um, hitting hitting in practice is not really correlated to winning. Uh it's just kind of a, a mindset that people have that if you're not doing well you hit more. If you win, you you say it's because you hit more. Um, you know, it's it's an easy out. You never coaches are scared to be that program that if you never hit in practice then you start losing, people will say well, it's because you guys are soft. But we're trying this model in different places. We actually worked with um the Sports Legacy Institute worked with the youth football league in Westport, Connecticut, the Westport Police Athletic League. We we laid out all the research and everything we knew and we said, look, these are the changes you have to make and it really starts with how you practice. Um, they went from 30 concussions three years ago to 25 last year to 11 this year and still won their league. Right. So but, they but, were... But, 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 but right? the issue
0: for really is sub-concussive in, uh, of impacts, really, right? I mean, you want them to... It's, right. It's the repetitive hits that aren't concussions that, that, that you're really concerned about here, right?
1: Right. It's the, the repetitive hits that don't cause concussions are, are the ones that... You know, there's there's, there's just so many of them, and that's what we need to focus on right now to eliminate because by eliminating just overall hits to the head, you're also going to dramatically reduce concussions. And so that's what the conversation we need to have, and that's the conversation we're pushing. And even from the NFL and NFLPA perspective, you want to make NFL players less likely to get CTE, it's not changing the game they're playing today because the average NFL player plays only three years. The reality is, you want to change the ten years they played prior to the NFL. Recognize the fact that they're doing most of this as children, and dramatically reduce the exposure they have to brain trauma.
0: You know, one thing I never quite understood about about you know helmet to helmet hits is that a player who isn't a player who leads with his helmet in a hit, absorbing just as much punishment as he is inflicting
1: no actually it 's actually it 's kind of uh, the way the physics works out it 's more like a game of chicken if you come into that hit with more force than your opponent you 'll almost always push them backwards, and therefore your brain doesn 't slow down as abruptly as theirs does, and therefore. You're almost certainly fine. There are rare situations where the forces are so great that both guys are concussed. But my recollection is if I brought more force into the, into the hit, I wouldn't feel a thing. It actually felt really good. And so if that's the, if that's the case, it's a game of chicken because you're both better off if you don't hit each other as hard as you can helmet to helmet. But the reality is if you win the battle, you're fine. And so everyone just tries to win the battle, and that's why we get these enormous collisions.
0: Yeah, long ago, coaches used to 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 use the expression for, for good blocking, put a hat on somebody. Um, yeah. But I've also, it's one of the things that I've just observed watching the game is that it, it always occurred to me that a lot of the helmet contact seemed almost unavoidable because the game is just so fast. You may be going in low to, to to hopefully make contact with your shoulder pads, but if at the last minute the player you're tackling, you know, takes a dip, you could end up catching the head. Um, but as I've watched the game since they've been tougher on the rules, it's remarkable to me that these guys are such great athletes. They can actually avoid uh, using their helmet if they're thinking about it, right?
1: No, you, you know, you know, you're absolutely right. It's a great observation. Uh, you know, to address the first part, you're right. It, it is, you know, there's going to be a ton of accidental helmet-to-helmet contact. I mean, if I was out there right now trying to tackle Michael Vick uh, when I got within three feet of him, and I thought I was, he was, I was going to hit him a certain way. The fact is, he's such a great athlete; he can move his head four feet from where I thought I was going to hit him. And it, the problem is, it might end up, you know, where I was going, and it might not. And so, as a player, they, people find out that if you pick a side, if you say, "Okay, I'm not going to go straight at his head; I'm going to go after one shoulder," it makes it harder to tackle him because you're, you're exposing one side of your body, and he can run that way and, and avoid you. And so. It, it's a tough situation for defenders and blockers to be in because the safest way to make sure you catch some of somebody is to aim right for their middle. Uh, but, I mean, you know, when, when you watch, you're right, when you watch these defensive backs going after wide receivers across the middle in slow motion, you're, you know, you're seeing them put their head, you know, just six inches over from where it used to be, and suddenly the hit's clean and everyone gets up and they keep playing rather than having to get a, a cart to wheel somebody off because you want helmet to helmet.
0: We're speaking with Christopher Nowinski, who's been an activist to uh, reduce head injuries in football and other sports. He's also the author of the book *Head Games: Football's Concussion Crisis*. Um, tell us a little more about this this brain bank and how it works. What you're looking at?
1: Sure. We we Sports Legacy Institute partnered with Boston University in 2008 to start the Center for the Study of Traumatic Encephalopathy, and with that is a brain bank under the uh, under the watch of Dr. Ann McKee. Ann McKee's has been a neuropathologist for years and has a brain bank of about a 1,000 brains. And I said, well, we're going to start getting you the brains of athletes and, and start looking at CTE. And so what's been great is partially because of the publicity and partially because we work very hard, we've been able to acquire the brains of 57 athletes since we started in 2008 including uh, nearly 30 football players, boxers, hockey players, pro wrestlers. And so, um, you know, we're, we're finally getting understanding as to what is going on inside the brains of athletes, and it really is telling us that we've been extremely reckless and we need to change things. If a layman looks at a brain
0: that's had this chronic traumatic damage, does it look different than a normal brain?
1: Depends how advanced it is. If it if it's a young person that's passed away, no. To grossly, it'll look the same. If it's an older person, for example, a Hall of Famer, Lou an NFL player, died at 82. It's smaller. It's much smaller, and the the ventricles and in, in the middle are much larger, just because the brain has lost so much mass from cells dying. Um, the only the the way you know we can't diagnose this disease in living people right now, so we have to look at them after death and. What you, the only d- disease you can really see is when you look under a microscope. When you look cell by cell, you see a toxic protein called tau that has been, is slowly choking the cell to death. Essentially, it used to be part of the structure of the axon. The swelling from the injury probably caused it to fall apart and, and, and start to behave abnormally um, and, and cause degeneration in the brain. So you see these, they, they, they actually paint the tissue with an antibody that turns the toxic tau protein brown. So you see these brown splotches on a microscopic level, cell by cell. And in some places, in some of these brains, you will see uh, more dead or dying or diseased cells than you see living cells in parts of the brain that control things like memory and emotional control. And so it really is no surprise that these players suffer so greatly because their brain, you know, it's, it's, it's literally falling apart. Before I let you go, are, are you still experiencing symptoms? I am not experiencing the headaches anymore. I don't have the sleepwalking anymore. Uh, my short-term memory is actually pretty good. And so I think I'm out of the woods when it comes to post-concussion syndrome. The problem is I have to be concerned that chronic traumatic encephalopathy is in my future because 90% of the guys in our brain bank who have had the same brain trauma exposure that I have, have CTE. And so when they got into their late 30s and 40s, their short-term memory started disappearing. They started developing impulse control issues. They started developing mood disorders and depression. And so I am keenly aware that every time I overreact to something, that I don't know if that's just me I don't know if my brain is slowly falling apart. And so um I deal with that and and I try to pour that energy into the the work that we're doing so we can eventually have a treatment for people like me and then maybe a cure. Let me ask one more question. Um if you tell young players what the risks
0: are and count on them making intelligent decisions, it's got to be tough. If if you know if you're in your 20s and the rewards include playing on Sunday in front of 70,000 screaming fans, making a ton of money, becoming a celebrity. A lot of people will take all kinds of risks, won't they?
1: You know, that's a, it's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, you know, I'm a big believer that adults with in, with informed consent can do ton any dangerous job they want. I mean, look at me. I used to go through tables off the top rope uh, on your average Friday night as my career. Yeah, I thought it was great. Um, the issue here is not – so I don't I don't begrudge players that, that as long as they've been told this information and say, you know what, I'm going to take the risks because it's worth $10 million to me and will set up my family for the rest of my life, I'm okay with that. The problem is that 95% of the players that are playing football are under 18, and there's no such thing as informed consent for children on this issue. And so, when, you know – We have have to give them a chance by educating them, and then we have to force them to adhere to responsible medical practices by sitting out and letting their brain recover. And separating the kids' game of football from the adult game of football is something that we need to uh, do going forward. I mean, I, I think when you step back and you hear old baseball players say they're lucky that they're adults that get to play a kids' game, I think of football the opposite way, and I think that we have kids playing an adults game, and we need to separate what those two games are because, uh, you know, kids uh, can't, you can't throw away kids' future just to to have a little fun uh, after school and on the weekends.
0: Well, Christopher Nowinski, it's really been interesting, and I wish you the best of luck. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Christopher Nowinski is the author of the book Head Games, Football's Concussion Crisis, and president of the Sports Legacy Institute, a nonprofit working to fight brain trauma in athletes. You can find a link on our website, freshair.npr.org.